Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Green Apple Books in San Francisco, California, connecting curious readers to great books since 1967. Browsing at Green Apple is a unique experience. From our handmade signs and book recommendations to the many nooks and crannies for reading, you can get lost in Green Apple and find serendipity. Our friendly, well-read employees also stand ready to help you in any way. For your next great read, stop by or go online to greenapplebooks.com. And we're brought to you by Story Studio Chicago, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. Learn more at storystudiochicago.org. You know how we bump into folks and they ask, how are you? And we say, fine, but most of the time we aren't fine, we're lying, or if not lying, not telling the full story. I'm recording these words in the afternoon and already today I've been tired, hungry, sad, frustrated, but too often I don't admit all that when people ask. I guess I don't wanna burden them or bother them with my actual feelings. Or I assume they were just being polite and they don't really have time to listen. Sometimes that might be true, but surely not always. And it's not really my job to decide how other people feel. They get to do that. Because if we're not careful, we can tumble through days and even months of never authentically answering that question and never letting folks in. That's one of the reasons I was so bedazzled by the most recent book by today's guest. In How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, Writer Angie Cruz asks us to consider just how much change and opportunity is possible when we listen, just sit and really listen to the full story of someone's life. In this heartfelt and often very funny book, we journey with Cara Romero. We learn her whole person, warts and all, and we change and unfold together with her as Kata considers starting all over again in her mid-50s. This book is beautiful and vulnerable, and I wanted to meet the person who created it. So let me tell you about Angie. Angie Cruz is a novelist and editor. Her novel, Dominicana, was the inaugural pick for the Good Morning America Book Club and recognized as a most anticipated or best book of the year by countless publications and prize committees, including the Women's Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction, Oprah Magazine, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and many, many more. Her most recent book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, was published this fall to rave reviews. The Los Angeles Times wrote, This book will have you laughing line after line. Angie Cruz aims for the heart and fires. Angie didn't always think to become a writer. She attended LaGuardia High School as a visual arts major and then pursued a fashion design degree at night while working full-time during the day on Madison Avenue at a cashmere store. Later, she pursued an English literature degree and attended the MFA program at NYU. Angie's the founder and editor-in-chief of the award-winning literary journal Asterix and is currently an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh. She divides her time between Pittsburgh, New York, and Turin. Angie Cruz, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I am so excited to have you here today to talk about your recent 
triumph of a book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, and to think about how the very parts of ourselves that we that we hide, like our secrets and heartaches and our regrets and even our lies, how all of those things can still be part of our story and make up our whole selves. I mean, Gata Romero in this book just, I mean, cuts right to everyone's heart, I know. But I, I, not everyone's read it, so I should back up and just say, before we wander into the book, I wonder if you, Angie Cruz, can tell us your story. How did you become the best-selling author we know and love today? <laughs> um, thank you, Anne-Marie, for having me and for asking these questions. Um, you know, it's funny because when I think about the book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, the way that book began was by asking the character, tell me something about yourself. And her response to me, Gara Romero's response was, do you want to know something about myself? I came to this country because my husband wanted to kill me. Don't look so shocked. And, you know, the truth is that I think about how at any given time, when you ask someone their que the question, tell me your story, the answer is often different unless you're performing the answer, right? And, um, and I was thinking right now, it's like, tell me your story. Well, I'm right now in my office in the University of Pittsburgh, where I'm an associate professor, and I teach creative writing um, to both undergrads and MFA students. And, you know, I grew up in Washington Heights, New York City. I'm the daughter of Dominican immigrants. And I didn't imagine myself as a writer or publishing in books because I didn't read books by people of color up until I um, entered the university and studied um, English literature. And I had a wonderful professor who introduced me to African-American writing. So when I think about the beginning of my story of how I, you know, where I am now, um, published author and where I started, I think about how so much of my trajectory was really um, about access, you know, and um, education and um, fierce, I would say fierce, fierce women who went out of their way. Um, to make sure that either I survived and got through the educational system. And then those professors that um, went out of their way to see something in me and keep encouraging me to write. We say that representation matters, but I don't think we unpack that statement very much. And what that means is that you could go through for a time, you and I are about the same age, but you look younger, and I'm going to try not to be mad about you about that. <laughs> mad at you for that. But like we could have gone through and likely did go through school reading all of the same dusty texts that we were told were canonical that did not leave room often for women, certainly not for women of color, certainly, certainly not for Dominican women or women whose parents came from the Dominican Republic. And it, like, you're absolutely right. You would never have encountered a, a writer like you. And therefore would not have known there could be writers like you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just wasn't in my imagination, right? And it just shows how so much of, you know, when there's this fight for representation in mainstream television and film and books, it also is about thinking that, you know, we have a large population of African-American and Latinx community in the United States. 
um, that make up what, like 35 to 40% of the population and um, often don't see themselves um, in the books that are being taught or um, in the movies that they're watching or the TV shows that they're watching or when they do see themselves, it's always specifically within a stereotype. I mean, it's changing a lot now, but still, when you think about the numbers, I think it's slow. Um, and what does it look like when you can't see your reflection in all its complexity, right? So for me, what's exciting about writing now, I mean, I've been writing for a long time. I wrote my first book 2001. Um, I can't believe it. <laughs> it's been so long. And thinking about <laughs> what kind of writer that I am now is that I think that I couldn't have written a book like How Not to Draw in a glass of water, if I didn't have, if there wasn't critical mass now of writers doing interesting things and poetry and nonfiction and fiction, um, I think that that really helped me to sort of leap into this new space um, where my fiction is right now, which is more experimental and definitely bolder, I think in what I'm trying to say. For folks who've not read um, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, first off, just pause this and go get it and read it and then come back. But if you haven't, so the main character in, in this book is named Gata Romero. She's amazing. She's this uh, bundle of love and, and contradictions and, and good intentions and frequent misunderstandings. I was telling a friend recently that if you wanted to teach voice in a creative writing classroom, just hand all your students this. Um, but in the book, we, we meet Gata is, is interviewing. She's, um, she's interviewing for the, the senior workforce program. She's been laid off. Um, the factory where she worked has gone overseas and she's 55 and without a job. And as, as Gata likes to mention, um, to the social worker, which is also kind of us, but, um, uh, the, the checks from L. Obama will end. And as her friend Lulu says, you know, quote, L. Obama is good, but not God. Um, and so we meet her right in the middle of this time, which is not that long ago, right? It really isn't that long ago, but it, because it's on the other side of the pandemic, I think we've forgotten what that was like for the people we loved, especially older people we loved, working class people who've worked their whole lives to just be out of a job. It'd be terrifying, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it was terrifying and so destabilizing because what you think about is that you also lose the community of work, right? When you have... You know, I think about um, a lot of the people that I was in conversation with as I was thinking about this book. I mean, they worked with the same people for 20 to 30 years. And the place that they saw each other was at this place, right? And the community that they built and the way that they would share resources. And um, and then that also becomes destabilized. When we talk about, like, you know, cost effectiveness and what's profitable, you know, I feel like one thing we miss out on in all of these issues, is it gentrification? Is it, you know, um, insecure, you know, um, food insecurity? All of these different things is that what you do is you attack mental health, right? And you, uh, and you um, destroy um, support systems and you, you add that. And then you say, this is long-term, very expensive on our country and 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 it's interesting because as i'm speaking about this book i think more and more about like you know who is taking on really the brunt of these decisions that are largely corporate and it is the working class people as immigrant people is 
Um, and unfortunately, their lives are not getting better. Like when there was a boom in our economy post a great recession, it did not, it was not better for that community. In fact, long-term employment for women between 55 and 65 and before retirement, like did not happen. A huge percentage never returned to the workforce, Um, but somehow managed to survive. But again, who was taking care of those women and how did those women survive? Like it's a little, it's very sad. And again, it's an underrepresented voice and story. So yeah, I was struck constantly by how incredibly familiar Gata Romero sounded, right? She was at times my auntie. She was my grandmother. She was a neighbor, right? She she was so familiar to me and yet utterly one of a kind. I could not remember when I had last, if ever, encountered her in, in a work of literature. And I, it, it was this strange, so familiar and yet so her own. Um, so, I mean, throughout the book, right, she's, she's, I think we have 12 weeks and she's She's interviewing or, or she's looking for a job. But as, as we turn the pages, of course, I, I was struck by the number of jobs she already has, right? She's, she's taking care of the older people, the viejo, viejo, the vieja caridad. She's taking care of the older people in an apartment complex. She's cooking for people. She's walking dogs. She's, she's taking care of children and, and checking in on neighbors who are parents or who are struggling with their own children. Women in this country do quite a bit of, of caregiving. It's it, the number is staggering. I want to say it's like 60 some percent of women, you know, women do at least 20 hours of unpaid caregiving a week and, and often much, much more. Um, and so she's looking for a job at the same time. All I could think about was how are we going to get a job when all you do is work, work for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and everybody needs, everyone needs that labor, right? It's not labor that like, how would they survive without that labor? We take that for granted, though. Without the unpaid work that these women do, how do we, how do we survive? And yet she's there running out of checks and, and unable to pay her apartment rent um, because she's, she's working all the time for the people and, and needs to get a paycheck herself. And I, I was looking up stats, just trying to remind myself, but, you know, a recent article from CNBC said that Nearly two-thirds of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Two-thirds. You know, like nearly, it's like 64, 65% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. This is, this is a lot of us. Do you think, I mean, you do this amazing job of pointing to how much Gata Romero has and how much she has to lose. Have you been surprised by how readers of all backgrounds keep finding themselves in her story? Yes. I actually, you know, I... I mean, books are surprising in general. I feel like every time I publish a book, I'm surprised by the kind of reader from the parts of the world that sort of come back to me and say, this is my story. I'm not Dominican, but this is my story, you know, or this is my auntie's story. And Cara Romero's story seems to hit a lot of generations, which I find that's the most surprising, right? Where I have really young readers that are reading this book and saying, oh my God, this it feels like this book is like better than therapy. Someone said to me at a reading, they're like, it's better than therapy because it's giving me permission to just love my mother, even though we have all these differences. Like, I just want to love her, even though I know someone is, everyone else is telling me like she's the villain. And I thought, oh my God, like a book allows you to just 
allow allows you the space to love someone even though you don't agree with them, which is, is kind so, of amazing. Yeah, that is so <laughs> right? incredibly yes, that's totally true. And it's so surprising to me because I didn't expect that response, but I understand it because I love Cara Romero, even if I'm deeply in disagreement with how she raised Fernando and how she ostracized her son, right? Like the book so much is about motherhood and the choices that mothers make and and how we fail as mothers, right? I'm a mother and I constantly feel like I'm in spaces of failure because I'm like, ooh, that might've messed them up for life, you know? <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, the book is also about giving a, a person that you wouldn't in real life the time to tell their entire story. So you could see the contradictions that you mentioned earlier, right? Like, yeah, she's doing, she's saying some things, but she's doing the exact opposite. Right. Um, and the opposite is kind of amazing. Like how generous she is and how thoughtful she is and how caring she is and the sacrifices she makes to hold things together. Um, even if, there have been a lot of things that were incredibly damaging, you know? Yeah. I think one of the non-representative texts that you and I were po probably both made to read would have been Walt Whitman about containing multitudes. And she's so like that, right? She's both generous and selfish. She's both loving and sometimes a little hateful and, and bo both open to anything and, and judgy. And, and I'm struck by the fact that we are all like that. We really, we really are. We all tell, I mean, you, you alluded to this at the top. We all tell the version of our story that we think is the correct one. It's the honest one. It's, it's the, events, the events as they unfolded. But other people in the room might tell a different story than the one that we tell. And I mean, Gata's story makes me think about the, the power of lies. I'm not giving anything away here by saying that, you know, she's not always honest to the social worker. She's not always honest to us. She's not always honest to herself. She's not always honest in the official documents that, that make her attest to everything you say is honest, right? I mean, she'll tell us, I don't make opinions. <laughs> and you think, are you kidding me? Of course you do. Um, and then there are, there are more, um, you know, there are more somber ones. When, when her sister, uh, uh, Angela, um, what is Cara said? She says, um, quote, Angela thinks I give pelas to her children. But I never give Pelas to her children, only pow pow. My grandmother used to call that um, the pock pock. But you know, only pow pow when they don't listen, and sometimes a little slap in the leg with my hand. Never a Pela. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite things about Kara is like she's there's so much truth in her dishonesty. She's she's telling the social worker, and by extension us, that she never hits Angela's children. <laughs> I don't hit them. I don't slap them around. But of course, she's telling us while she's telling us that she doesn't. She's also telling us that she does. Um, mm -hmm. And she's exquisite because we are all like that. We want you to, like, I want to show you the shiny parts of me and not show you those other parts, but it's all there and it's all part of us. Um, do you consider her an unreliable narrator? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all unreliable narrators, right? Like, I think that as even if we think we're saying the thing that is true, that truth changes with time and the spaces we're in, right? And I feel like um, in some ways, like her optimism about even, you know, paying her bill. She's like, it's just a little bit money I owe. And then you see the bills and you're like, maybe it's not so little. But again, like, you know, <laughs> if you live in this space of optimism that somehow you're going to be able to pe make it work, because what she has learned in her life experience is that 
even when it gets very, very, very hard, she's figured out a way to get this far. Then you're like, well, it's true that it might seem like a lot because we're panicked, understanding how the world works and the system works. But in her way of thinking of the way the world works, there's a possibility that it would work. It's going to work out. Right. And is she unreliable? Kind of, because we know how most people end up, but she believes her truth. Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. And I kind of believe it too, right? Even when she's simultaneously telling me she doesn't hit her sister's children, but also hits her sister's children. I also, within that contradiction, I understand the truth, which is, you know, Kara and Angela's mother did hit them, mm-hmm. right? She hit an anger. She um, she damaged her children. And what we hear Kara saying is, I'm, I'm going to be a different mother than she was. And we, we believe her because we see how much she loves her niece and her nephew – but then, as you mentioned before, we get to the story of her own son, Fernando. Again, a son we know she loves as as much as she loves anyone, right? She she left the Dominican Republic, fled with this baby, Fernando, to, to, to protect him from this abusive father. But then, yes, we all make mistakes in parenting, but hers with Fernando are, they are hard for me. They were the hardest in the book to to forgive or understand because she she hurts him. And Fernando, I don't think she ever uses I don't think I mean Kata is telling us a story, so I don't think she ever says that her son is gay. Or I don't think she knows the word homophobia, but we understand what's happening. And she throws an iron at him because she's telling us his pants were too short, clips him in the face. She just meant to make him stay inside. And then he leaves forever. And we don't blame him for leaving because she's not, she thinks she's trying to protect him, but we see her negating his whole self. Um, Were you ever tempted to make her more woke and understanding? Was that hard to write? Well, I think um, I could have done that, but she only has 12 sessions. And realistically, in 12 (laughs) sessions, you can't get a character to go from not being and then to being, right? And Mm -hmm. I feel like um, more than making her woke, what, you know, also that word, it's not like you become woke. I think it's a work in progress. We're all in process of learning what our blind spots are. And I feel like the importance of her having time at the job counseling sessions to tell her story, 
to an exquisite listener, like the interviewer and the social worker, is that while she's telling her story, we're also understanding that she was afraid for her son because she felt that the world was dangerous and something about, and she's right. There's nothing wrong about thinking that the world is not dangerous. It's very dangerous to be queer. We're now living in a moment where literally gay community is under attack. Um, So she's not wrong. Um, And at the same time, she's fully aware that her neighbor that she dedicates so much time to take care of is gay. And she mentions it, even though she won't say it, right? She won't use those words. So that contradiction of care and taking care and not really like accepting completely, but not totally like disregarding the person as a human or, you know, as someone she could care about and love and learn from, I think is a really important one because I feel like part of this moment is also about how do we translate these words, these actions with complexity, right? Because we have real enemies. There's real enemies out there. And I think what Kata's showing is like, she did, I, you know, what she did to Fernando is totally wrong. But at the same time, she's not the enemy, right? Like she's still doing really hard work. And if you give someone like Cara Romero time, like we have given her in the book, these five hours listening sessions, she can unpack and start connecting that maybe there's something that she did wrong, right? But the thing is, we don't give people that time. We have no time to listen, to talk, to, to take care of mental health, you know, especially with people without the resources. Um, so yeah, I think like part of it is, 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 is about showing the power of storytelling and how even us being given a space to tell our stories allows us to maybe see like where we could have done things differently and give us an opportunity to move in the world in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. I loved the vulnerability that you gave this character um, and her, the broken way in which she wholly loves her son. She loves him fiercely and, and also in ways that aren't, that are kind of sharp around the edges because she hasn't learned to understand him. Um, But she does say, I'm, I'm writing this up, quote, now I see I could have been more gentle with Fernando. I didn't understand this before he left. I learned the difficult way that you have to be gentle with your children or you can lose them forever. Even in her learning, she hasn't fully learned what we need her to learn. But but just like you said, we've only got 12 weeks with her. We see her inching along. We see her grasping and not always, you know, that might have been written right around when the cease and desist comes in where she's got to leave him alone. Um, so she's learning and, and we learn things and forget them all the time. Right. And again, it's a process. It's a process because the truth is that as much as we want to decolonize and be anti-racist and, you know, anti all the things that we're trying to work against, the entire narrative of our country, of the mainstream media is training us to do the opposite. The media is training us in all the different ways is to think heteronormatively in a, you know, with a capitalist agenda, like all of these different things. And yet, 
you know, we're trying to move the other way, but like predominantly the narratives in all aspects of our lives are pushing us the other way. So I think it's very hard. It's like you, like you have an epiphany and you're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is how I'm supposed to be loving. These are also opportunities. These are possibilities. And then you hit up, you hit, there's so many walls against change that we fall back. No, we see this in the book. There are these interstitial chapters where um, God is filling out paperwork or we're seeing uh, like her rent statement. And we, I feel like we catch glimpses of this at the same time that she is talking to a social worker who is ostensibly going to help her get a job and be retrained. The, the bureaucratic paperwork that you see, you know, at one point she's she's given um, it's like a career skills matcher for her senior workforce program. And they tell her, based on your attributes, these are the jobs you'd be qualified for. And she could either, like, assist as a caregiver or direct emergency management for national disasters. <laughs> like, those are the choices she's given. So, so sometimes they're funny. And then other times there's just this complete mismatch between what these forms require of Kara, who does not write English fluently, She's not even in a position to fill out these forms that she's being given by the bureaucratic bureaucratic system that is ostensibly taking care of her. That's what it's created to do, and it is clearly failing along the way. And you get this paperwork trail that even our our best intentions, right? Even L. Obama's program for her, um, there's a mismatch, right? It is steeped in the notion that everyone went to white school and learned to write in these ways and can answer these questions when she just didn't and can't. Um, you did that beautifully. That that's those, um, those chapters are, I'm so glad they're there. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel really, again, I feel like because I'm at this stage in my career, I felt really free and how I could tell this story. Um, I, the, the only inhibitions I had were the ones that I had for myself where I felt like, Am I allowed to tell the story this way? Um, because there really isn't, I haven't found a book that's similar to the ways that I was using these forms and with the satire, and, you know, like pushing um, at the edges of like, you know, of of what's possible in those documents. Um, but I do think that I'm so glad that I'm writing this book at this stage of my life, you know, because um, Cara Romero, I think, to speak so candidly, I think is, is an, even I, now that I hear the responses or I hear it like said back to me, I think, oh, wow. Like this book in some ways is smarter than me, <laughs> which is funny because I'm the one no. who created it. But I do think that sometimes we don't even realize how I was like, yeah, I've been thinking about these things a very long time. And the beautiful thing about creativity and art is that there's kind of a magic to it and a mystery to how it comes together. And, and I'm glad it came together this way. We spoke to Naomi Munavira, and she said something like, a writer who said something like, you become the writer you need to be to tell the story that you're writing. And Toni Morrison has that quote about how we we're always becoming, right? You're not the novel at the begin. You're not the novelist at the beginning that you need to be to see this project through, but you mm -hmm. become it as you write it, and it's it's writing you at the same time you're writing it. For sure, that's gorgeous. I I love I love thinking about that, and I'm I'm 
I'm also wondering, like, at this moment, because, again, I think I saw a photo of the cover of this book on the Jumbotron in Times Square, and I definitely was, you know, drinking my coffee one morning with the New York Times book review, and there you are on the on the front. Um, things are going well, and I'm so, so glad for you. And I'm I'm wondering, as you look back on those times of doubt, how... How did you push through them to get to now? Well, you know, I think that um, it's interesting to think that I feel like I'm always in that space of doubt. Like right now I have, you know, I'm working on a new book and I think, am I going to be able to write another book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One never knows, right? Because it's, again, I feel like there's something about writing that for me is mysterious. And I feel like that's because I'm interested in art and doing new things. And um, so... But I do think that when I look back of those moments of despair, I feel like the reasons I got through them was because I care so much. I have people that really love me and community that didn't let me give up. And I think that's true. You know, I come from, again, I would say working class community that didn't, not a family of artists. Um, I didn't imagine myself as a writer. And when I went to the university and I had, you know, was given an option to do creative projects and I would have professors that would go out of their way and say, did you apply to that thing I told you about? I think you can do this. I think you can go to an MFA. You should do this. You should try people who literally went outside of their work schedule, right? To make sure and follow up with me. I don't think I would have done it. And I think that that's true when I couldn't sell my book, Dominicana. I had writer friends who were like, I know you're going to find an editor. You can't give up. This is worthwhile. And when I meet younger writers or any writer who feels like they um, can't seem to find a place for themselves in this realm of writing and the writing life, I was like, invest in community. Toni Morrison says that too. You mentioned Toni Morrison. She said, invest in your community like you invest in your education, right? Um, and friendships. And I do think that um, friendships have um, been really important in me continuing in the difficult moments. Because when you can't lift yourself up, someone else can help lift you. We're not we're not meant to do this. I mean, I think we learned that from Cotta Romero, right? We are not meant to do this on our own. No, this is the whole point of her relationship with Lulu, her neighbor, right? Like, you know, she's supposed to, there's a scene where she's supposed to get up and go to this thing and she's not going to go by herself. Lulu knows this. So Lulu shows up and says, okay, get ready. And she's like, fine, I'll go because I don't want to make you late, right? And Lulu understands that Gada will not go without her. So she doesn't just go by herself. She takes her with her. Why? Because they're really in it together, right? Like they are in this together, um, and I think that that's also really, for me, really important um, in my life to think of myself as part of a community versus as an individual, like um, that we are interde- interdependent. And I'm really um, heartened by, you know, as hard as the pandemic was on all of us, like what I do hear more and more is people talking about interdependency and collective community and how do we take care of each other when really we we found ourselves in a context where nobody knew what to do and resources were so limited and we were forced to sort of be like, who are our people? Where can, who can we lean on? You know, am I really alone? Um, 
and it sucks to be alone. So why not <laughs> ask for help and try to build relationships where people want to help you as well? No, oh, that's totally true. I mean, this this show was born out of that loneliness of the of the pandemic, and I can't I can't um, count the number of times when I've talked to someone because I've read their book. Thumbs down in the pandemic, but I'm grateful for the our realization of the community that we all needed so desperately and were without for a long time. We always try to close with just some just some playful stuff to let people see the human behind the awesome writer. Um, so we'll just start with a few multiple choice questions. You just pick one. Um, dogs or cats? Dogs. Mountains or beach? Ugh, both. Yeah, I mean, in the Dominican Republic, you get you get both. Yes, so yeah, I like mountains. I mean, I I've always I would have said beach for most of my life, but I spent a lot of time in Turin, which is like surrounded by the mountain, and there's something really assuring about a mountain. So I like both mountain and beach. We'll allow it. Um, early bird or night owl? Night owl. Should we let it rain coffee or let it rain tea? Coffee. Um, are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? Risk taker. And these are a few fill in the blanks. Um, if I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a doctor. Excellent. So not an immigration lawyer, not a (laughs) fashionista. I'm trying to think of things I read about you that. Well, you know, I suck at science. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I don't, but you know, I didn't ever take chem or bio. They seem really hard. But now in retrospect, I, I love I, I love healers and I feel like there's a beautiful space of narrative medicine. So, yeah. Well, that kind of goes back to the stories that we told ourselves or that we were told about ourselves coming up through education, right? I mean, as mm-hmm. women, we weren't always pointed to math and science or we weren't always exactly. taken to rooms where there were female doctors. And so, yeah, these narratives, this, this representation is everywhere. Um, okay, this is another fill in the blank. What is something quirky that folks maybe don't know about you? It could be a like or a love or a pet peeve. Something quirky. I don't like to step barefoot on wet floors, like tiles. Well, because I'm always afraid I'll, I'll fall I don't know, down. That's the first thing that came up. <laughs> but yeah. it's just like, you know, you go into a bathroom. You know, like you're sharing a bathroom and then like someone showers and they let all the water on the floor. And then like, I just don't want to go into the shower anymore. Like, I just don't want to go into the bathroom. (laughs) I don't want to go in there either. Although I feel like for me, it's always, it's always my socks. My children have gotten ice from the refrigerator, the freezer, and they've they've dropped an ice cube. And I'm always stepping on it in socks. I'm like, Pet peeve. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Who are some of your, this is another fill in the blank. Who are some of your go-to writers whose work do you just love right now i'm really into vivian gornick um i don't know if you've Ooh. read her but there's a book that she wrote odd woman in the city that i was carrying around a lot during pandemic um she writes so beautifully about new york and and friendships and community and she just has a really distinct voice so i really love her and i'm really into the book by ingrid um, Contreras Rojas, Rojas Contreras, um, The Man Who Moved the Clouds. It's beautiful. It's really was my favorite summer read for sure. I'm glad to see that one. It's it's always nice when you read something and you and you love it, but you don't know if anybody else loves it too. It's mm-hmm. always kind of fun when the awards start to tumble out and you start to see um, the names of the people on the, who, who you want to because more often it's the other way. Like, why isn't why isn't that book on there? But I was glad to see 
I was glad to see that book on the list. Yeah, me too. That's fantastic. Um, do you have a favorite movie? I don't know. The first one that comes to my mind right now is City of God. It's a Brazilian movie. Oh. Very good. It's about the favelas in Brazil, but it's just also like everything. It's a wonderful genre. And I really love the most recent movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Did you see that? That I did. That was I, great. I, I mistakenly watched it with my son. So he's just he's just doing hot dog hands all over the world. But um, I, <laughs> I did the same thing. That was I watched it with my 14-year-old son. It was hysterical. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, and okay, the last one here. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see you doing? Having dinner with friends. Yeah. One of those blessings that we took for granted that when it went away, how grateful we are now that it's, it's back, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, Angie Cruz, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. It's such an honor to meet you. Thank you. This was wonderful. Um, I'm really, I feel privileged to be invited. Well, thank you for writing this book and for giving us the gift of Cara Romero, the auntie, neighbor, friend who feels so familiar and one of a kind. And I feel like her story offers us hope on, you know, the idea that we are all heroic survivors of our imperfect stories. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Yeah, folks who are listening, the book is um, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, it's available everywhere. Books are sold. If you're listening, um, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself and to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrove and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.